Highways Voices, the podcast of Highways News, your one-stop destination for all the news about the highways and transport technology industries, and our must-read daily newsletter. This week on Highways Voices, we talk to a global motoring superstar and an Olympic gold medalist. It moves us. It moves us physically and therefore it moves us emotionally. That's what it's done. That's why we've used it as a billboard to advertise our very selves on. Its utility is, is the problem because it is so useful and so effective at being a personal transport tool and its flexibility and distance in load carrying. I think it's just a question of how much and do we really have other choices? One of the most famous car journalists on the planet, Richard Hammond, joins us on today's podcast, along with Active Travel England's Commissioner Chris Boardman, a gold medalist in Barcelona in 1992. We'll also hear from the next generation of transport professionals as we talk the future of the car on this week's Highways Voices. Highways Voices, in association with partner organisations, the Transport Technology Forum, ITS UK, Elkrig and Adept. So Hammond and Boardman might sound like provincial solicitors, but they're our guests this week here on Highways Voices, and we'll hear from them after the latest Highways News headlines. And on top of the story of our partnership with Highways UK, that means that my co-owner Adrian Tatum and I will be busy hosting sessions on the keynote stage at the event in October, Adrian has other stories of note that have caught his eye on our website. Hampshire County Council has started the search for contractors, which Generation 5 Civil Engineering, Highways and Transportation Collaboration Framework. According to the tender announcement, up to 26 companies could be appointed to the four-lot deal, which can be used by a range of public bodies from Cornwall to Kent. Contractors appointed to the framework will carry out mainly highways-related works, but also some large unrelated projects between 2024 and 2028. Elsewhere, National Highways is continuing its investment to improve the safety of walkers and cyclists in the southwest. The Cornwall's Council's Saints Trails Initiative has been enabled by the National Highways Designated Fund Programme, providing a network of cycle paths between the coastline and Truro. And Southampton City Council is accelerating its ambitious plans to create a more vibrant, welcoming environment for everyone, living, working, studying and spending time in its city. The city centre has seen significant investment in recent years, delivering new housing, retail and leisure opportunities, reflecting the changing needs of residents and visitors. This current package of government funding schemes will create a family-focused city centre that improves community, economic, cultural life through enhanced public spaces within the city. And it will have transport schemes at the heart of that. And finally, global traffic radar sensors and solutions company Smart Micro has acquired the UK-based distributor of its traffic sensors, Smart Video and Sensing Limited. As part of the acquisition, the former Smart Video and Sensing will now operate under the new name Smart Micro UK Limited. The entire team will stay on board to ensure a smooth transition. When it comes to industry news, we're the only place you need to go for everything you need to know. You'll find loads more stories on our sites and find them all and so much more at highways-news.com where you can find links to our LinkedIn and Twitter feeds and, of course, you can sign up for our daily email into your inbox every lunchtime. Highways Voices with Paul Hutton and Adrian Tatum. Swarco improves quality of life by making the travel experience safe quicker, more convenient and environmentally sound. 
from software as a service traffic management solutions to parking, VMS, EV charging and road marking too, find out how Swarco can deliver more efficient and safer traffic management. Swarco, the better way every day. A couple of weeks ago, I was invited to join the great and the good of our industry at the Rhys Jeffries Road Fund motoring debate on the role for the car in society, which was hosted at the Royal Automobile Club in London. Two of the panellists were Grand Tour host Richard Hammond and Active Travel England Commissioner Chris Boardman, and I caught up with them, starting with the former star of Top Gear. Richard Hammond, we're here at the RAC to talk about the future of the car. I'm going to wager that you're going to say that the car has a future in our transport network. Yeah, I mean, I am fairly biased on that. I've been working with and around cars for 30 years of my career and they've been the stuff of my dreams for a lot longer than that. But yes, of course it is. It's what it does for us and what it's done and what it continues to do is too important for it not to be. It's, it's shaped our world. It won't go away. It will change, but it will be here. Do you think, though, that there is a necessity to maybe use our cars less or differently and maybe try and change modes at some point for some journeys? Some journeys, yes, I get that. It'll polarise out. There's the utilitarian, simply getting to where you need to be. Now, where I live in the countryside, cycling simply isn't an option. The nearest train station, 20 miles away. The nearest tube station, 130 miles away. There is no public transport option, nor cycling, nor active transport. However... There will be other solutions. If I could telephone an autonomous, anonymous plastic box on wheels that would arrive at my front door and take me where I needed to be, there would be occasions when that would be perfect. But it will never scratch the itch, which is a device that it moves us. It moves us physically and therefore it moves us emotionally. That's what it's done. That's why we've used it as a billboard to advertise our very selves on. They are a form of expression. They won't go away for that reason, just as... There would be an optimal type of clothing, something that could be made cheaply, last forever, would fit everybody. Why don't we all wear it? Because it's a form of expression. It goes beyond the utilitarian. The car is a bigger version of the same thing. I did the London to Brighton Mini Run on Sunday, and the passion that people have for their cars, and some of these cars come out once a year for that run, some of them didn't make it out of cheap, but people do love their cars. So even if there is this kind of belief among the industry that, oh, yes, we'll get into shared mobility, we won't need the private car, we will have other ways of getting around, actually, people talking to each other in conferences and things might all agree with that. But then how are you ever going to get the general public who love their cars to actually give them up? I think in terms of car enthusiasts, the numbers are going to increase wildly, and here's why. When we are offered that picture I just painted of the autonomous, anonymous plastic box that arrives at your front door, a lot of people face with that option, or, where applicable, the option of cycling using a train. A lot of people will suddenly look at their humble polo, Corsa, whatever, their humble hack, and think... I just don't really like it. I like what it what it allows me to do. I like using that machine. And they'll suddenly realise that for the first time they identify as a car enthusiast. And I think those of us who have been gathered round in the centre as though under attack are going to look over our shoulders and realise, wait a minute, nearly everybody's joining us. So I think actually this, it'll polarise out and there will be more car enthusiasts. The car is not going anywhere. Do you get the feeling, though, that you're as a motoring journalist and a very famous one, kind of under attack a bit because it's not the trendy opinion to have that we still need the car. Uh, the car's been scapegoated since 
this development. I mean, by the 20s and 30s, governments were realising, wait a minute, we can put a massive tax take on this. And not only that, it's a vote win. Because back in those days, it was only the very wealthy. Now, it's still, by comparison with a lot of people, the wealthy that can afford cars. And a lot of voters, if they see a government kicking them, will think, brilliant, have at them. So it's always a vote winner to kick the car. That's why it's been picked on from an environmental point of view, for instance. There's plenty of other things we have to address. The cars account for, was it 27%? I can't remember what it is, of the total greenhouse gas emissions. Fast fashion, food production, all of those things have a bigger effect. Tourism. They've all got to be resolved. The car is just the easiest one to demonise. If you kick cars and car owners, you get votes. If you kick people who buy a new football strip every six months because of the team they support, or a new pair of trainers made on the other side of the world by somebody else's children out of fossil fuel-derived, oil-derived materials, and then shipped around the world where you'll use them for six months before putting them in landfill where they'll sit for 100 years, that's worse. What do you think of EVs? I think they'll be part of the picture. Don't there's any doubt about it. Yeah, they have, they have a role, absolutely. I mean, I've owned a couple, I've really enjoyed them in the right applications, yes, but we can't go 100% battery electric. Of course we can't. Even if you could generate electricity renewable, how are you going to distribute it? What the carbon footprint be of turning every single petrol station into a charging station, of getting nitrogen-cooled cables about a foot and a half thick into every street in every major city to deliver the electricity. The carbon footprint of that would be vast, plus not mining nickel, cadmium around the world. So it, they will be part of the picture. So will hydrogen combustion. Anything that goes depot to depot, you don't see buses in petrol stations. Fill it at the depot with hydrogen. Fine. Also synthetic fuel. Once it's generated renewably using carbon dioxide extracted from the air, half of which is sequestered away as rock, or even turned into road surfaces, which can now be done, then it would actually have a negative impact. It would reduce carbon dioxide. So that means 1.4 billion cars currently on the road can stay on the road. Now, I'm going to gloss over how the car caught fire, but I do remember in the Grand Tour that you said that there was an electric car fire that lasted about three or four days and you just couldn't put it out. It's thermal runaway with the batteries. To be fair, Rimac, the company that made it, Mate, he's a bright, bright bloke. They've learned from it and they do now shield the batteries. If you don't shield the batteries, they ignite in contact with oxygen and what happens is each cell within the battery ignites burst the next one to it and that goes and that goes and it, I think it was, it was about three weeks it burned right. of course but that's new technology there's always going to be problems I mean the idea of travelling around with a, a big bucket of hydrogen on board is a bit unnerving but there will be means found of protecting it and keeping it safe technology will resolve that problem I have no doubt it'll be fascinating there's never been a more exciting time for the car it began as a novelty for the very wealthy it went on to shape define our world enable a lot of what we do so when we're reinventing it now, we know what we're messing with. When they started it, it was a bit of fun. Now we know it's a lot more than that. So it will be done. That's Richard Hammond with a passionate defence of the car and its value and also some good points on the environment for consideration. And we'll hear about the thoughts of alternatives to the car to allow us to use them less with Chris Boardman. And that'll come straight after updates from our podcast partners. Highways Voices. With the latest news and events from our partner organisations, Elkrig, Adept, the Transport Technology Forum and ITS UK. Local authorities will be placed under even more pressure if 
the government expects them to enforce air quality legislation without new resources to do so. That's a message from ADEPT in its response to the government's air quality strategy, co-authored with the Association of Directors of Public Health and the Chartered Institute of Environmental Health. The joint response calls for a joined-up approach from government and wants to see DEFRA involved in the development of the DFT's local transport plan guidance. ADEPT has long argued that siloed thinking from government departments makes it harder for local authorities to deliver on national policy and the report calls for urgent action to deliver cleaner air. The draft programme for this year's Elkrig Innovation Festival has been released with delegates set to hear about skills, emerging technology, maintenance solutions and the latest innovations. The event, which is taking place on the 4th and 5th of July at Newark's showground, will bring together local authorities, central government, the supply chain, associations and academia. The overarching theme for this year's event is showcasing emerging technology and maintenance solutions and Elkrig Content Director Alec Peachy will co-chair a session on this subject on the first day and you might be stuck with me being part of that session too but don't let that put you off. You'll find so much more about the event on the Elkrig website. The Transport Technology Forum's redesigning its website to make its huge amount of premium content easier to access. Check out ttf.uk.net where you can find, for example, the Manual for Smart Streets. This manual provides help to local authorities in identifying and using technology to deal with traffic and transport management challenges. It identifies a range of technologies that will deliver efficient and safer mobility quickly and cost-effectively and provides use cases and real-world case studies of the solutions. You'll find out more about it and so much more of the TTF's work alongside a live demo of Connected Vehicle Solutions at the Elkrig Innovation Festival next month. And ITS UK is hosting an enforcement forum meeting for its members next Tuesday, the 13th of June at Unoptic in Camberley in Surrey. The event for members is hosted by Chair Jeff Collins from Accusensus, and there'll be speakers from South Wales Police, Agilisys, Transport Scotland and General Noise, as well as a panel discussion hosted by yours truly. See you there, hopefully. Highways Voices, the podcast from highwaysnews.com. Highwaysnews.com. Now back to the Rhys Jeffries Road Fund debate on the future of the car in society and Active Travel England Commissioner Chris Boardman. He's tasked with increasing the amount of walking and cycling in the country, and that's something I suggest to him was a tough job given our network isn't geared up for it in a way that say the Netherlands is. Well nor was the Netherlands when they started I mean they started 50 years ago and, uh, and are, are reaping the benefits now and I, I don't usually find it particularly useful as a comparator because it's too far away it's too different and uh, they've got a different legal system and there's so much difference that even though our climates are similar and our cultures are similar it doesn't really relate to people, it doesn't help. But we have them in this country. Now, two, two of note, I think, the one that we always just skip over is Cambridge, where 37% of journeys are made actively every single day. And they've got over 6,000 bike parking spaces outside the station. And the colleges are bought into it. You have to have a dispensation to get a car. The whole culture puts people first. And it works, and it's, it's pleasant. But there's other examples that you don't know about. There's um, a place called Kesgrave, just on the outskirts of Ipswich. 800 kids, 61% of kids ride school every day, which is more than Holland. What? And they inherited a 1930s bike path, and as they built up the estates in the area, they built around rather than over, and it's not pretty, 
and they've got a horrible 80s underpass to get to the school, but it's easy, it's the easiest option. And the kids just do it because it's easy, not for any moral reasons. And they've got um, lower body weights than the average in school. They have higher attendance, more attendance at after school clubs because kids have transport independence. So it's there in pockets and it works. And our job is to start joining that together. The problem is that, for example, Stevenage, I, I used to work in the local radio station patch that included Stevenage, and there, lots of walking and cycling routes built separately or alongside main roads. But then as they expanded the town, they kind of gave up on that. So again, in pockets of Stevenage, you can cycle, but then suddenly you've got to face a main road. And, and it's is it frustrating when you look at that we, we had the right idea when we were inventing towns in the 60s and then somehow the car just took over everything? I think what, what we've done is, I mean, the cars are, are great and they're a wonderful tool and that is, is the issue really. So we're overusing it for everything and in doing so we've saturated the streets and we've lost choice. And so now we have to re-inject transport choice back into the system. We have to give our kids transport independence for a myriad of reasons. You know, we've got mountains of data and everybody knows about it. And the question, of course, is that nobody ever asks is what happens if we don't? Well, your NHS isn't going to make it. You know, it's 7.5 billion spent every year treating uh, inactivity-related illness. Well, one in six deaths now is attributed to inactivity, which is the same as smoking. Uh, climate change, the obvious one, third of your carbon's coming from transport. And of course, cost of living. Well, I've gone down to a one-car family and mostly I get trains and, and just nip to the station on a bike. Uh, my bike maintenance costs me £20 a year. So we've got lots of incentives to do it, but we really need to be careful if we don't want to do it, then we have to face those consequences and own them too. I've always talked about the fact that if we had a real joined-up government and holistic, you could be clamouring to the health department for some of their budget to spend on making it easier. Yeah, the active travel agenda actually benefits the policies and ambitions of eight different government departments out of 24, health being the primary one, of course. You mentioned Holland earlier, their obesity rate is, is almost half of ours. I don't think that's coincidental. And they certainly love their cars, but they have other options. And you know, all of their, their kids, the vast majority of their kids, get to school under their own steam every day in normal clothes. And they're not cyclists, they're just getting to school. And that takes time and it takes commitment to get those kind of choices back into your system. You're going to be roughly the same age as I am. Now, the issue is you're an Olympic gold medalist. I'm not. I like going out on my bike, but I have to say, faced with a what feels like a Tour de France-level hill that's probably only maybe a couple of hundred yards, it's half killing me by the time I get to the top of it. Is there any way we can actually design... The, the cycling network we'll, we'll kind of like f fill some of them in or something to make it a bit easier for a lardy 50 something to uh, to get around on two wheels e-bikes are now exploding in popularity across the board and that's now relentless we're over a decade behind Europe again just working in the industry I watched Europe the popularity of e-bikes increased massively it's actually changed the infrastructure in places like Holland and Denmark where bikes were used for a relatively short journey to get to transport hubs and now they're going into urban as well as intra-urban so they're actually building longer bike paths because of it so we've got on the bandwagon at last and it's one of the fears is headwinds and hills and whatever get tired and it's helped a lot of people and it certainly expanded into cargo as well which is 
an area that's emerging quite rapidly because it's a really reliable way to get freight around dentist populations. I've just got back from the ITS European Congress in Lisbon and I was chatting to a company there called C-Sense that provide a bike light with sensors in it to give data. In your job to justify investment and justify policy changes, how important is it to get really good data about cycling so that you can see how things are changing? I think I'd probably say at the moment, say, well, how much do you need? You know, it pays as a transport investment, it pays back at six to one, which is possibly the highest returning transport spend, the benefit cost ratio. It's the fastest to deliver. It's the cheapest way to move people about. I mean, yeah, and it benefits your health system and society, etc. Etc. So it's like, how much data do we need? And the best tool for gathering data is your phone. You know, it's doing it all of the time. So we have access to it. But I think the, the important bit we have to do, more important than the data, is supplement the data with real life stories, things people relate to. Forget the activity, that's a means to an end. What is the end? Well, I want my children to have transport independence. I want a health service that's robust and can uh, can thrive. And I want everybody to have equitable transport, which is cheap transport, because a third of this country doesn't have access to a car. And we forget that as well. So I think they're, they're the bits that resonate with people. Every poll I see, that's what comes out, cost of living climate change and the NHS, well, this speaks to all of those things. And we need to make that link and then add the data. Now, I live in a really rural part of North Essex, not actually a million miles from Kesgrave that you talked about. Is there a difference in your approach for someone like me who lives in the sticks and is three miles from his nearest very small convenience store, let alone a a major supermarket, and somebody who lives in the centre of London where really there isn't, in my opinion, a, a real need to have a car unless it's absolutely desperate for your work? Yeah, the approach is different. I mean, um, the essential ingredients, that uh, the fundamentals are the same. You know, you're not going to make that journey wherever you live unless you feel safe and when it's convenient and you know your bike's going to be there when you get back. So there's some fundamentals that everybody needs to get going. But how that is deployed in the countryside, so there's a lot of old beaching lines, a lot of old railway lines around the country. I use one of those to get to into stations. I think in populated areas you're not going to go down there at night because you're not quite sure and you feel insecure but in in a country environment that might be appropriate for school times to get kids to go back and forward between the school and the state so we're going to be bringing out a rural design guide soon to help people with those kind of decisions but if you really want to get mobile shift then quite obviously the place to focus is your dense population centres. Yeah that's where I guess you've got to get people out of your cars if possible. Now two final questions. Number one I heard you speak at the Transport Technology Forum in Liverpool a year ago and you were kind of new into the role. You come out of Greater Manchester to take on the national role. A year later you don't appear much greyer and you don't appear to be much older which means that actually this job maybe isn't stressing you out. You've still got hope that you can uh, you can achieve what you want to achieve. You think there might be something in it? Yeah, last year was fascinating. The politics of last year because all of this is embedded in politics. Culture change is politics. And I, um, I really relished the challenge. The challenges kept changing <laughs> throughout the year, but I, I thought it was interesting. The, the beauty of championing something that's, that is, whether people like it or not, apolitical, it certainly should be. This particular topic is such a sturdy soapbox to stand on. You can connect with people, you can find ways, which is what we're here for tonight. And um, finally, we're here talking about 
the future of the car, does the car fit into the transport planning of the next decades? Where do you sit on that? I think, of course, it does. Its utility is, is the problem because it is so useful and so effective at being a personal transport tool and its flexibility and distance in load carrying. I think it's just a question of how much and do we really have other choices? And the question I asked before, what happens if we don't reduce car use? Every bit of data I've seen from, both nationally and regionally, we have to drive 30% less and electrify and shrink everything else. And that's the only way you're going to meet your carbon emissions targets. The only way to do that equitably and fairly is to give people an attractive choice. And that's what I'm in the business of. That's Chris Boardman, and he and Richard Hammond had a really good debate about the future of the car, free of dogma and point scoring and very practical. We'll have Adrian's accolade before we go. But before we do that, let me introduce you to three of the next generation of our industry. The Reese Jeffries Road Fund exists to foster improvements in the engineering, management, design and use of roads to deliver safer, more environmentally sensitive, more aesthetically pleasing and more enjoyable outcomes. It does this by funding projects, research and events and awarding bursaries to individuals pursuing relevant professional qualifications. And before the debate, I caught up with three of those individuals. Hello, I'm Martin Smith. I'm at the University of Leeds studying transport planning. Hi there, I'm Matthew Elliott. I study at the Uni of Leeds and I study transport planning and engineering. I'm Zara Ali and I'm a part-time master's student at University of Westminster and then I'm also a transport planner at London Borough Council. And you've been recipients of bursaries from the Rhys Jeffries Road Fund. How did that come about? So I attended uh, Taster Day for the University of Westminster. They talked about the various modules on offer and they had the, the bursary as an option for students. So I filled out the forms. wasn't sure if it was going to go anywhere, but yeah, I was really lucky to get the good news last year. Okay, Matthew, what does the bursary entail? Is it simply that you get some funding towards your studies or is there other support and other maybe obligations towards the Reese Jeffries Road Fund? So when I applied for the bursary, I had to go for a competitive application, which involved filling out a form and how I would use the money provided towards my studies and where it would go next. And in turn, I would write a complete report for the Reese Jeffrey Road Fund at the end of the year, as well as accredit them and share with them, hopefully, my complete dissertation. And so, Martin, how important has the bursary been to enable you to achieve in your studies? So I've come straight from undergraduate, so I studied economics, and so taking a transport degree is a bit different to what I did in my undergrad, so having that economic backing for me is really important and also it then enables me to focus more on my degree rather than so in my undergrad I did part-time work as well just to sort of fund daily living and stuff like that so it's made me be able to focus more on the degree that I'm doing and have hopefully better quality better quality in my dissertation because I'm putting sort of my heart and soul into it it's really beneficial for me yes. Uh, Matthew I saw you nodding vigorously there. The bursary for me has been able to provide that sense of security so that when I finish my degree, I'll be able to know that I'll have less combined debts or any payments and that I can go and study at university without thinking about part-time work and the likes. Okay, so Zara, what's the future of transport then? 
Uh, good question. So kind of doing work and study gives me kind of a good exposure of what's happening on the ground now in like a, a London borough where there's definitely like competition for road space. Like right now we're, we're looking at the ULES expanding. Are we, are we moving towards more road user charging? How do we kind of help people our age and, and others kind of accept that space is limited? Do we all need to own a car? Air quality, climate emergency are all really important things kind of growing in people's consciousness. So, yeah, I think we're moving towards a space where transport can help address so many different things. As transport planners, we can play a part in that. And how has transport planning changed in the last few years when it comes to a sudden huge increase in the focus on active travel? Just looking at the impacts of low traffic neighbourhoods and the idea now that that last mile connection between a public transport station can should be able to be made by foot or by bike and providing that infrastructure where the pedestrian or the cyclists feel first in the new highway code update for example it plays a large part to the the kind of new focus in transport planning and it's almost akin to a paradigm shift a focus away from minimizing travel time and travel generalized cost and moving towards that safety strategic and low carbon future of transport planning and martin we're at this event at the rac talking about the future of the car does the car the private car have a future in transport when you're say my age it definitely does. So it, it has where you don't have any other opportunities, such as public transport alternatives, if you're going further. Also, obviously, for disabled users, more vulnerable road users, a car is really important to them and also important for businesses as well. Deliveries, we're seeing more online shopping as well. So having that vehicle and allocating space for that vehicle is really important. But I also think that we're now going towards, obviously, as Matthew said, for sort of the 50-minute city idea and the sort of active travel as well. So for local journeys, being able to either cycle or on foot, or we see these sort of new e-scooters, the higher for those coming about. I think in terms of local journeys, I think there will be a shift away from car. Also for longer distance journeys in the future, we've got sort of HS2 and increase in sort of rail connectivity. So I think there will be less journeys on car for longer distances between cities as well, especially as road charging is introduced in those cities or air quality is introduced. So I feel like the car still has a place, but the place in society will change as travel patterns change as well. Martin, Matthew and Zara, best of luck in your careers and do keep in touch. I want to keep hearing your new ideas and we'll share them on Highways News. Thanks very much. So our industry is in good hands with three people there who are on their way to doing amazing things for us. And talking of people doing amazing things, we still have time to find out who Adrian's tipping his hat to this week in Adrian's Accolade. And my accolade this week goes to a group of connected vehicle experts who are undertaking a new project to give emergency services and road operators essential data about road crashes in real time. Faster response and detailed information regarding the vehicles are the focus of a project awarded to startup company Vsauce Solutions. It has received a grant from the Transport Research and Innovation Grants Programme, which is delivered by Connected Places Catapult on behalf of the Department for Transport. Until now, eCall, which has been mandated on a newly approved cars and light vans since 2018, has focused on voice channel, which is initiated when the airbag triggers the SOS button 
that is pressed. So new developments in this area is the reason why they're worthy winners of my accolade this week. Thank you, Adrian. And that is it for Highways Voices this week. Fantastic to have two big stars like Richard Hammond and Chris Boardman on our podcast and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did chatting to them. We're back next Wednesday at half past nine. I'll catch you then. Highways Voices. Join us again next week for more insights from those that matter in the industry. 